the Social Minute podcast and looks at the social network minute by minute. Today we'll be covering minute number 85, which goes from 1 hour 24 to 1 hour 24 59. Um, and we start uh, with um, Mark kind of exclaiming about two continents. He kind of whispers under his breath. Because he's so amazed at the idea that there is a second continent outside of America. You know, that's the American <laughs> education system. I'm sorry. There are more than one continent, people. Uh, he then offers Sean a place to stay here at the Palo Alto house, uh, living on the, the beneficiary of the, you know, a fund from Eduardo Saverin. Um, he's given him a couch because obviously he is now currently couchless because as we have stated, he is nothing more than a homeless person. Um, you know, a homeless person who was sued by the music industry into bankruptcy and who spends his time going from couch to couch of various different, um, uh, I don't know, college, college <laughs> ladies. Yeah. Like it, it's, you know, undergrads, basically that's all he's doing. Like, uh, uh, give him a co-ed dorm and he'd spend, uh, give him a co-ed dorm and he'd spend half his time wandering around in, in shower socks. And, and so obviously, you know, <laughs> Sean agrees. He's like, yeah. I guess I can stay with you. Um, and then he decides to get some shots lined up. Um, and then he tells the server to take this away and bring out the 1942. <laughs> so, and the server says, as we kind of finish this part, absolutely, Mr. Parker. So obviously they know him here. You know, um, it, it's, I don't know, it's kind of funny because it's almost like this entire thing was just because he didn't want to say, can I sleep on your couch? He wanted yeah. Mark to offer it. And that's, that's the best thing in the world because now Mark has made the offer there's no obligation for here for Sean to go anywhere. Whereas if Sean asks, eventually Sean's got to go somewhere. Um, and of course, uh, as this happens, the music kind of stops and then we cut to the Thames. That's right. We're in England. Uh, we get a little title card that tells us it's Henley, um, uh, which uh, Aaron Sorkin, I love this in the script. He tells us <laughs> that it was founded in 1179. <laughs> Um, you know, it's it's a medieval town. Um, and in the moment of quiet, we see two razor thin skulls explode for the final agonizing hundred meter stretch. I like that he uses uh, meters as well. He doesn't he doesn't go. It's half a mile, but he doesn't do that. Um, a hundred meter stretch of the ancient and prestigious Henley Royal Regatta. The two boats are neck and neck. The port side boat is being crewed by two Dutch members of the Hollandia Rowie Club. Uh, the starboard boat is being crewed by uh, a pair of identical twins wearing tank tops bearing the H of Harvard. Uh, that is kind of roughly around where we finish. And actually, uh, these are eight-man skulls, and they have coxes as well. So, <laughs> um, obviously, uh, you know, Aaron Sorkin didn't do a huge amount of research on exactly how this works. But uh, the, the competition that they took place in in, in 2004, July 2004, um, it, it was an eight-man crew. So... You know, there's more than just the two in each boat. But he was correct. It was the Hollandia Rowie Club. So, you know, uh, Rowie spelt R-O-E-I uh, because obviously it is Dutch. Uh, and the word Dutch is a corruption of Deutsch, which means German. So there you go. You've now learned that. <laughs> and joining me to talk about today is Robert Black. Hello, Robert. Hello again. Uh, so, yeah, we finish off in the club, um, you know, and basically we arrive at the point, which is... Sean has got nowhere to stay and <laughs> Mark offers him a place. And, you know, all of the stories have kind of almost been building up to this. You know, the show of good faith, 
kind of almost, you know, even though it's a show of good faith, Mark obviously feels obliged to offer something in return. We literally started the, the you know, getting into the club with him saying, Sharon has finished for the summer, she's going back home, you know, I'm she's gone back to her parents, uh, you know, I've got nowhere to stay. And it takes three different stories and him building him up and I'm a CEO bitch before he eventually arrives at. Well, oh, think, think of the st- alternative. If he doesn't have a place to stay, Sean is going to have to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. Just go back to the first. I, underst- I understand He's the water done. under there is freezing cold yeah. as well. Sean, so- Sean is saving him. <laughs> yeah or mark is saying i just i just kind of love it i love i love the build up and then we eventually get to the point which is he needs a place to stay and uh i don't know it's just a wonderful kind of interaction between the two of them throughout the whole of the scene and this is a wonderful little payoff where it's like yeah of course he you know he, he was he was looking for somewhere to stay and he says that right at the beginning of the scene i've got nowhere to stay sharon's going home you know um you know his dates might be victoria's secret you know uh, models uh, but I don't think they want him kind of, you know, maybe he can stay one night, but he's not going to be able to stay on their couch for two or three months. Like, that's just not a, a thing that's going to happen. For a start, they're models. They're going to be very busy. Uh, you know, they work very long hours. They're going to be traveling around the world. They don't have the time to be looking after Sean Parker, um, you know, former billionaire. Um, you know, they've got other things to do. Um also, a lot of models live in homes with other models, like they have rented apartments. So they probably don't have the space for a Sean Parker to just hang around. Uh, whereas, you know, Mark has already demonstrated at the Palo Alto house, everyone's pretty much covered in all the time. So, you know, there's plenty of beds that probably aren't being slept in for days on end. <laughs> so, you know, pick up whatever's on the floor, probably, I don't know, with some gloves on if I were you. And, you know, maybe move some of the stuff off of one of the beds and that's it. You know, you're in there, Sean Parker. Um, and I think this is kind of interesting because, like, this is, uh, you know, if you know where the film is going, this is the point at which, uh, you know, we're about to, obviously, at the end of this minute, we jump back to our final, you know, five minutes with the Winklevoss twins. We don't see them again for the rest of the film. This film is about to become, um, you know, the worst type of uh, threesome, uh, which is one where... <laughs> Everybody is super unhappy and nobody really wants the situation. And between Sean, Eduardo and Mark, we're about to get just a bunch of arguments. <laughs> no one's going to be happy. And basically by the end of the film, all three of them are reasonably miserable. Um, and this is kind of starting here with, you know, Sean Parker being like, OK, I, you know, I guess I can stay with you. It's funny because he never really says yes either. Nope. Um he just kind of nods and then calls over the server while Mark is saying this and then gets some shots um, for him and the models. Um, and then, of course, he I like the line as well where he's like, take this away and bring out the 1942. Well, I don't know what wine it is specifically he's asking for, but if it's from 1942, it's not going to be cheap. So, <laughs> so, it sounds like he says bring uh, back the 1942. Like Maybe he gets the same bottle every night he's at this place. Maybe, although in the, the script thing. it says... In the script, it says bring out. So yeah. uh, I don't know. The music is very loud. So maybe it's easy to hear it either way. Uh, but basically, like, you know, the server knows his name. Victorious Secrets, you know, models know his name. And, you know, he, it's easy for him to call someone over in the VIP area and get them some shots, um, you know, without having to present to any idea from Mark, who clearly is underage at this point. There's no way that he's 21. Um you know, but I I don't know. I just love that like this kind of roundabout thing is like Sean making 
his first step to get into Facebook. Um, you know, like he, he, having Mark come out to the club, you know, he already impressed him with the meal, you know, earlier in the film. Uh, but obviously, Eduardo was kind of causing some friction there and making things a little more difficult than he probably wanted. So without Eduardo kind of stuffing things up, he's like, OK, I've got Mark by myself. You know, I need somewhere to stay. You know, this this feels like the, you know, the right time for him to kind of make his move. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, also should be of note that probably UCLA or, you know, Stanford probably aren't going to have any kind of cottage parties for him to go to for another two or three months. So uh, <laughs> making it very hard for him to find accommodation, you know, the usual way. Um, but yeah, so I just I just love that that's the capper to this scene is like Sean being like, OK, I've got somewhere to stay now. And obviously, you know, in a few minutes time, once we're done with the Winklevosses, we'll see how that has paid off for Sean, you know, and it's, you know, it's things are locking up for him. Let's put it like that. Yeah. Um you know, he's no longer the homeless rock star of Palo Alto. He's somebody who has seen a company that he can get a percentage of and probably make some money out of. And in all fairness to him, you know, he, you know, he, he kind of, he picked the right time to do that. You know, he picked the right company, you know, like uh, he, he's there to help Mark. And, you know, in appreciation, Mark is like, here, have, I don't know, 1% of the company. And that turns out a few years time, it's it's worth billions. And so... Mm-hmm you know, he, he, he kind of backed the right horse. So it's not like Sean Parker was a dummy. You know, he managed to kind of see the potential and he kind of went with it and, you know, it, it paid off in his favour. Uh, but also I just love the manipulation in the whole scene. Like, start off by saying I've got nowhere to stay, finish up with getting the offer of come and live with us. Um, not even like, you know, come and stay on the couch for a couple of nights or anything like that. Just come and live with us. Like, you know... And that's that's a lot more final than just crash on the couch for a couple of days. This is this is like yeah, it's permanent. Yeah, this is the last this is the last place that you're ever going to live before you become a billionaire <laughs> and buy yourself a couple <laughs> of mansions and then have a six million dollar Game of Thrones themed wedding. Like this is this is the first step <laughs> towards that. Um, I can't remember if it was Game of Thrones or Star Trek, something like that. He had a very specifically themed wedding that cost a lot of money. Um, but yeah, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg was, was a more simple affair because he's a classy guy. But Sean Parker, <laughs> I like I like that the kind of the music fades just as we get to the start of the boat race. Um, and we get to something that is kind of unusual, which is um, this scene was the final scene shot um, for the film. Um and it was shot about six weeks before the film need to be delivered for, um, you know, huh. to have prints made. And the music was the last thing written for the film um, and scored and then obviously put onto it. Um, and, you know, the boat race itself was kind of like the last the last thing that they did. Uh, and, you know, they use this this thing that makes it all look like a bunch of little tiny models, uh, which is called tilt shift. Um, and. It's it's kind of amazing because, um, you know, I guess like the next most prominent use of tilt shift that I can think of is the Stephen Colbert Late Show, um, where it has like shots of New York that have been tilt shifted. Um, so it looks like a tiny little model, like Manhattan looks like a little <laughs> tiny model. Um, and they put like little tiny details in like they shoot they shot like um, Stephen Colbert, like throwing a basketball. And it's it's kind of just put in as like these little tiny models inside like this New York thing. Um, but they sh- they shut the whole thing as um, this kind of tilt shift thing. Um, and the reason for that is because they didn't have enough time to do it. 
and they knew that if they tilt shifted it, they didn't have to worry about background details. So, um, you know, the, the regatta club actually set up, uh, you know, along the actual race, you know, the, where the race took place originally in 2004, they set up the exact same kind of size stands. Um, a bunch of locals kind of came over for, for a few hours each day to kind of fill out the background. And they basically shot the rowing sequence on the same stretch that this race was originally, you know, done um, almost exactly six years to the day um, that they shot this sequence. Um, and then they tilt shifted it so that the background, it didn't matter about the details, so they didn't have to kind of fill them all in. It was just kind of slightly out of focus. Um, and they could also kind of really focus on the, the boats on the water. Um, and it's, I don't know, It's it, I remember seeing this sequence at the cinema and just being completely blown away by it. Like, we go from this kind of, this club scene and the music's very loud and then we get to this really stylized sequence and it's it's such an like it feels like a completely like it's out of a completely different film uh-huh. and it's such a completely weird left turn um but all these years later it just kind of seems to make sense to me it's just like yeah of course of course the the boat race is tilt shifted you know <laughs> it just makes sense uh, as a sequence um uh, but like i say it was just done to kind of cover up you know the shortcomings of it basically like the second unit had to shoot everything really fast and you know then they shot all the close-ups um in uh, a man-made lake in eton and it didn't look anything like henley on thames <laughs> so, the, so the tilt shift then allowed them to blur the background so you couldn't tell where they were they just put some green stuff in the background and it was as if they were rowing by the side of the of the river um and it's just it's kind of amazing you already said it well you already said in the script that he points out uh like when the town was founded or whatever. We also learn in the script that this is the longest natural straight stretch of water in the world. <laughs> like, why is he telling us this in the script? <laughs> I, I don't know, but it's just, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful little thing that he feels. And he also says, we're looking at a stone bridge crossing perfectly straight with a stretch of water against the backdrop of the medieval town. They, <laughs> they don't actually do that shot. Uh, you know, there's a couple of bridges yeah. that are there, but there's no stone bridge that they do. But yeah, I like I like that for some reason. Uh, you know, rather than just say, you know, there's a race. <laughs> Aaron Sorkin goes into so much detail about, um, you know, how close they are. He he even puts stuff in italics and bold, which you don't normally do in scripts. You know, like that. So it's yeah. like there's a there's a bouche and then there's a pop and. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, we'll get most of the race in the next minute, but this is just the kind of setup of, of it. Um, and I'll talk a lot more about the music in the next minute, but it is, uh, you know, a, a it's a, a specifically done rendition of In the Hall of the Mountain King, um, which, which, you know, it's it's done in the style of Wendy Carlos, um, who obviously did the score for A Clockwork Orange. And this is meant to be like the Beethoven stuff that's in Clockwork Orange, so... Um, and at the time when I saw it at the seminar, I was like, is this meant to be like Clockwork Orange? And then afterwards I read some interviews and it's like, yes, it's meant to be like Clockwork Orange. And I was like, oh, thank God I picked up on that because I thought I was going crazy. But yeah, it's such a, I mean, I love the piece anyway. I mean, it's such a wonderful piece. Like, you know, Grieg is, is, you know, he's really good. And this is such a great piece. And, you know, just turning like this kind of, like combining the tilt shift with the kind of, the synthesizer it just it kind of just it's so kind of out of nowhere but at the same time i like that david fincher kind of took the risk and when when you know uh, trent reznor and, and atticus finch said can we do this he was like yeah go for it like let's let's at least do it see what it looks like if it looks terrible if it sounds terrible we'll have to do something else but you know throw that tilt shift on especially there, you know 
especially as you said, coming out of the previous scene where we're stuck at that one little table in that club with all the noise, them yelling, and then it fades out and comes in on this where it's so much quieter and classier. Yeah. Just when it starts up with that, like so kind of, you're just like, oh, what's going Like, it's literally like, what is going on here? Like, like, where are we? Other than this music, this music made me think of like commercials or like, it was in the trailer for Needful Things. Yeah. I mean, it has been. It has that great buildup. It has been used in a lot of things. But I think kind of the use of the kind of synthesizer. Um, and kind of deliberately doing like in the style of Wendy Carlos, like, you know, circa 1973. I think it really works, mm-hmm. you know, just because it's so completely different. And, you know, in, in the in the Hall of the Mountain King is just wonderful because of the build up and how it speeds up. And, you know, so it really fits with like the idea of a race. Um, but I just I, I know I just kind of like how we we're suddenly thrown into it here. And it's, it's just like. Uh, okay like what you know it like aside from the little title card of henley you're like okay so now we're in henley what's going on and then you know <laughs> like it, this film hasn't had tons of title cards um you know they didn't bother no. they didn't bother telling us we were in palo alto they assumed you knew what had happened after they'd had california uberalis um you know they they they've only had a few just to kind of identify at the start harvard 2003 and you know, since then, there's been very few title cards. So just the fact that they're like, here's, you know, Henley. And it's like, okay, you know, <laughs> like, why is that important? And then, of course, once it starts going, you're like, oh, I get this now. We're Like, they had to say Henley because otherwise, if they had just come to the Thames and started playing this music, you'd be like, what has happened? What are we doing? <laughs> like, what's going on? Um, but yeah. Or we think they're back at Harvard or something instead. We wouldn't know what this is. Yeah. Although they don't tell us how important this race is. No. You'll probably get to it next minute when you're more of the race, but like the team that wins goes on to the Olympics like a month later. Yeah, it's like this is a big thing. And yeah, it's this kind of race. Yeah, in ter- in terms of like the like you know the the kind of in terms of like the the rowing community. Yeah, this is an important this is an important race, and um, you know uh, the, the kind of it's really weird because um, you know within within this country there's a lot of like I mean the most important is Cambridge Oxford boat race, which is you know once a year and. But like, there's, it's so weird because like there are a lot of like boat races because we have, fortunately, we have a lot of stretches of water that are suitable for doing boat racing. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and when we had the Olympics in 2012, um, you know, like some of the rowing events, it's just like, yeah, we've we've got the Thames. Just take your boats out there, and that's it. Off you go. Like we don't need to build <laughs> any facilities yeah. for it. We can just, you can just start rowing out there, and that's it. You're in a race. Um, but yeah, it is it, like the Henry Bugatti is like a, you know, a really important part of the rowing calendar. Um, and obviously it's something that, you know, kind of, if you are like the Winklevoss twins, if you are like a serious rower, then it is something that you want to qualify for and you want to kind of compete in because it can, you know, it leads to better competitions. Um, yeah. you know, oh, well, every four years it leads to the Olympics, uh, but in other years right. it leads to other international competitions. It's, it's seen as kind of like the, the benchmark for, um, you know, rowing each year, and it's you know, it's kind of crazy. Um, yeah. So the next one I think is next July. The 2019 one's just finished. Um, you can look up the results of the 2014 one on the Henley Regatta um, page, and the qualifying match for this was more exciting because um, uh, Harvard beat Cambridge by uh, one quarter boat length. 
uh, sorry, one third of a boat length, whereas here they lose by two thirds of a boat length. So that was even closer. Um, so it's it's kind of crazy, you know. Um, like I say later on in, in the minutes, to have a race this close over this kind of length is it's not usually seen. Um, you know, normally one of them will pull out quite far, and that's the thing with the uh, right. the Oxford Cambridge boat race, and why it's literally the least interesting thing in the world. One of those teams, <laughs> one of those teams is always overpowered, and the other one is always underpowered, and we're literally within the first two minutes of the race, one of them is way behind, and will never catch up, <laughs> and you're just then waiting for the inevitable end. Um, so it's it's very rarely a close run thing. Um, so it's nice that we get a close run thing here and David Fincher really takes advantage of like using the technology basically he's like okay we're going to shift your perspective completely you know <laughs> that you've just heard Sean Parker say two continents here's the other continent we're on it mm-hmm. the perspective is completely different the music is completely different you know everything about it is completely different um, and normally um, you know, David Fincher isn't one for um, you know kind of close-up shots um even when we're in the club that you know the, none of the close-ups were tight close-ups they're always no. medium shots um and you know just kind of medium ones and here we get some we get some close-ups mostly because they're in a man-made lake they're not on a river so they want to hide that <laughs> but we actually get a kind of different <laughs> editing style to this scene as well um and so it's it's kind of not like everything about it is completely different from the rest of the film um, you know, and I would say if, you know, if someone hasn't like seen like a David Fincher film, you know, since, I don't know, seven or Fight Club or something, you could literally just pick this kind of like two and a half minute sequence out and go, this is this is something he did, you know, like in in the middle of a film. He just did this. And it's kind of amazing just by itself, like to see kind of the editing, the tilt shift, the music, um, you know, all the close ups. It's just so completely different from everything else in the rest of the film. And also, this is one of the, the opportunities where he couldn't shoot it over and over and over again. They basically had like three days to get it done. And they could only <laughs> have them, they could only have these rowers row this race like two or three times before they were exhausted. So, <laughs> so there's no hundred takes here. This is like literally two or three takes, and then that's it. They were off to Eton to sit in the middle of a lake and shoot a bunch of close-ups. Um, so it's kind of a sequence that really kind of comes together in the editing uh, more than the shooting. Uh, because I would say it's a little confusing as to where things are in this in this sequence. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't really matter because you just want to feel the excitement of sitting in a boat and, you know, being with the twins or, you know, like that, that's what it's trying to get across is just uh, the kind of the immediacy of the competition. Uh, much like a lot of the previous couple of minutes was almost like Sean Parker was talking directly to you. Now you're in, right. you're in the boat with the Winklevoss twins and you're trying to beat the Dutch. Just like at the beginning of this week, Mark threw the bottle to us. Yes. You know, the movie is interacting with us repeatedly. Yeah. And, you know, it's just it's just a wonderful, I don't know, it's just a wonderful sequence. I'll talk more about it in the next minute because obviously that's where we get the bulk of the race. Um, yeah. But this is just a nice little kind of setup. Um, and you know when you're watching it in the, as part of the film, this is always the point where even if I'm watching the film and it's just kind of on in the background and not paying attention, as soon as the sequence starts, you just have to watch it because it's like, you know, it kind of amps you up. Um, and you know when I had the soundtrack and I would listen to this, I'd be like, yeah, this is, <laughs> you know, this is exciting. Like it, it's a really good kind of rendition of this song, which you've probably heard like a hundred different ways. Um, but it's yeah. it, it kind of it's it's a very specific kind of stylistic choice, and it's immediately like, oh yeah, this is. This is what happens when you get talented musicians to just, you know, kind of make a choice. 
Um, and I kind of like that David Finch was just like, yeah, do it like that. Go for it. <laughs> you know, like do it in the style of a composer who worked with, you know, a great director. You know, that seems like a, a step in the right direction. Um, although I would love at the same time to hear this done in the style of like, I don't know, Danny Elfman or John Williams. <laughs> or you know, like I would love to yeah. hear their versions of, of this song. It would be quite funny to... You know, uh, I, I know it's it's just one of those things where if you know certain styles of well-known kind of film composers, it'd be interesting to hear them kind of. I mean, Hans Zimmer's version of this is just literally one single tone for like three minutes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, is there anything else that needs to be said about this minute? Uh, again, it's kind of a transitional minute. You know, it's just the end of the kind of the capper to the previous stuff, and then just the start of the race. I think the the music is interesting, not just because like this music has a great build up and it fits a race nicely, because it. It's deliberately over the top and it gets bigger and bigger as it goes. But I was looking into it and the, the play it's from, uh, Henrik Ibsen's Pierre Gint, actually has some weird similarities to Social Network. I was trying to figure out who picked this song, like because Fincher, like whether it was Fincher or whether it was Reznor or whoever. Because this movie purposely plays with, I think you said a couple minutes ago, like the timelines. We switch back and forth between the two different depositions, the flashbacks. Like it's it's present moves around a lot, and Pierre Gint the play also moves between time and space and reality and fantasy. Sometimes without clear um, indication, like suddenly a scene will be a different scene, and kind of plays with that. And the main character Pierre is a guy who runs from commitment, is completely selfish. Uh, where's this quote? It's from the Gale Study Guide to Henrik Ibsen's Pierre Gint. Uh, completely selfish, having little concern for the sacrifices that others are forced to make in accommodating him. And Ibsen's use of satire and self-centered protagonists suggests social implications for 19th century society. Like, social networks suggest implications for us. Like, we're this guy who's full of himself creating what we all live off of now. Like, social media. And, where's the other line? Uh, the idea of avoiding commitment, of doing just enough, turns out to summarize Pierre's existence. He's living in a manner of a troll rather than a man. And at the end, he is not, he has not been virtuous and cannot go to heaven, nor has he sinned so greatly that he will go to hell. And at the end of this movie, like, that's where we're left. Like, he's sitting in that room alone. Mark is not going to be punished, really, not a, nothing he can't handle, but he's also not going to get the reward he wants. And I thought that was interesting that, like, not just the way it, the music sounds, but even where it comes from fits with Mark Zuckerberg and this whole creation of Facebook. And the lawsuits, like, lawsuit from his best friend, you know? That's a big thing if you think about it. Yeah. Uh, although some would dispute exactly how friendly they were in real life. Um, they feel <laughs> like it was played up a little bit in the film, but, you know. Um, yeah. But even, the, I mean, the film's version, they are best oh, friends. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, that is. Yeah. Maybe his only friend. Yeah, <laughs> despite the fact there were at least three other people present while Face Mash was being made and yeah. having beers chucked at them as well. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think <laughs> it's interesting as well, obviously, that Ibsen asked Grieg to compose music for the play um, because mm -hmm. that then also is kind of like that's what, you know, that, that's what film directors do as well. Like they have yeah. certain composers they go back to. Uh, and obviously, this is the first time that Trent Reznor had worked with David Fincher, but then, you know, he's worked with him you know, the next two films after this. So it, right. it's, it's kind of a similar thing of like him asking Trent Reznor to come and do the music for this film. 
Uh, Trent Reznor had never kind of scored a film before he did this. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, David Fincher was a fan of Trent Reznor's, as evidenced by the fact that he used the Trent Reznor remix of a David Bowie song at the end of Seven. Right, for Seven. And he used, um, you know, Closer for the opening titles of Seven. <laughs> so obviously, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he was obviously a fan of him. So it's funny that he took like... Um, I don't know, 14 years before he decided to collaborate with him. Um, but like the idea of... Well, he wasn't as good as bo- selling it as uh, Sean Parker. No, no, yeah, Sean Parker would have had him... Use his songs to get his attention, but yeah. then he's like, wait, what's the next step? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Sean Parker would have had him composing for, for him within five minutes. Um, but yeah, so right. the fact that Ibsen asked Grieg to compose the pieces that would accompany the play feels like a similar move to David Fincher asking... Um, you know, Trent Reznor to come and score this film um, and Atticus Finch, of course. Um, and then obviously the fact that then the choice is made to pick this this Grieg part and kind of do it in the style of Wendy Carlos, who obviously, again, collaborated closely with a specific director. Like, it's I don't know, it's just mm-hmm. interesting to see these little relations, um, you know, kind of showing up here, like the relationship between Wendy Carlos and... Uh, Stanley Kubrick and then you know Ibsen and Grieg and then also you know uh, Trent Reznor and uh, and David Fincher here so it's it's I don't know it's just it's nice to yeah. kind of see uh, that those kind of collaborations all kind of coming together in this one scene where <laughs> where mm-hmm. someone takes someone else's music and does it in the style of somebody else uh, and it's it's kind of it's kind of just a, a nice, you think I mean in lesser hands this would kind of all fall apart and sound terrible um, but obviously Trent Reznor is you know, kind of knows kind of how to use this music. And, and also it's such a strong piece. Like, you know, you could have somebody, you know, with a bunch of kazoos play this song and it would still sound really good. Like it's just, you know, the kind of the intensity and the build of it is just so suited to the well, scene. It's, it's so deliberately over the top. Like even Greek yeah. said it uh, reeks of cow pats, ultra Norwegianism <laughs> and to thyself be enoughness. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, he couldn't bear to listen to it after he wrote it. Cause it's so over the top, but it's for a race and it's put on the Winklevoss twins. So it works perfectly. Yeah. Cause that's who they are. And and also, you know, uh, obviously Grieg as well was known for being uh, a kind of nationalist composer anyway. So he was somebody who, you know, uh, when he did put lyrics to uh, this song, which, you know, obviously there are lyrics, uh, we don't hear them on this version and generally they're left off. Um, they were in Norwegian. Like he could, and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, normally for kind of music, you know, that is kind of set to stuff, uh, particularly kind of classical music, you know, you compose it in Italian, even if you don't speak Italian. <laughs> so uh, for some of the kind of nationalist composers from like the uh, the end of the, the kind of 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, composing stuff in your own language was kind of a very particular statement. And so obviously doing something like this where, you know, you would compose a song that is, like you say, over the top nationalist that was kind of composed in, you know, with, with Norwegian lyrics. Again, that's a kind of very specific statement. Um, yeah. and, you know, choosing it for this scene is again, a very kind of specific thing. Um, but it's, you know, it just works so well. Um, and the tilt shift thing, of course, instantly you're like, what is going on with this scene? <laughs> like, why do the little boats look like tiny little models? And then you kind of get up close and they're real. <laughs> and it's like, why does the little stand look like, why are the, it looks like little tiny like models moving around in like a little tiny model stand, but no, they're all real people. It's, 
it's a it's a wonderful kind of I mean I think these days obviously you know with a with a camera on any kind of phone you can tilt shift your own stuff and so it's it's yeah. these days it's kind of less of an achievement but back then it was kind of like wow this is an amazing kind of sequence and everything about it is just so kind of interesting and different and you know instantly uh, even if you were kind of getting sick of people kind of yelling over the top of club music, you're um, kind of lulled straight in with that kind of those opening chords and the kind of quietness and then kind of the build as the, as the race goes on, uh, you know, it really kind of gets your attention. Um, and it's a great transition to the next segment, like section of the film. Yeah, yeah. Separates it. Oh, next week it's going to be so much fun. Uh, you know, finally <laughs> we get rid of the Winklevoss twins and Divya. They're done. <laughs> um, you know, uh, they lose a race and, you know, spoiler alert. And, you know, people start telling them that Facebook is super successful and they, they make a snap decision to... Uh, finally do what we've already seen them do for the last hour in the film. <laughs> you know, uh, it, It's kind of, it turns into like an, an Aurorabras as they kind of circle back around to what we already know is going to happen. Um, so is there anything else that needs to be said about this or do you feel like we've pretty much covered this? Point? No, I think we got that. Uh, well, you know, as we have both mentioned, uh, you know, there are films that are being covered minute by minute every day. Um, you know, if you want to find yeah. out what they are, then go to moviesbyminutes.com. Um, if there's not, a, you know, if there's a film on there, you know, or there's a film missing that isn't being covered minute by minute, just start talking about it. And hey, presto, there you go. You are now covering the film minute by minute. Um, you know, remember, though, that if you start, you must finish and always cover things in release <laughs> order. Um, and obviously, you know, the originators of the daily format are, of course, the Star Wars Minute. Although if you wish to listen to me covering minutes, you know, films minute by minute, then, uh, you know, A Talking Cat, The Boy Next Door, uh, Clueless. Uh, how to lose a guy in 10 days and of course uh, seven uh, have all previously been covered by me uh, and people that I know uh, not just me certainly not for a talking cat I, I only spoke about five minutes <laughs> of that film uh, I wasn't crazy enough to try and talk about all 86 of it um, and is there anything that you wish to plug Robert? Uh, well you just mentioned the, or- the Ouroboros and the structure of this film I'd say Annihilation Minute in which a tattoo of an Ouroboros is actually very important in that movie and it's science fiction film that has an interesting play of time with flashbacks, flash forwards in the present. Uh, and so I've been covering that minute by minute. It also has a really good tie between what you were talking about earlier, the composer and the director, Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury came in to like, put together a specific score based on two pieces of music that had already been picked out by the director. Had to kind of form a score that tied those two different styles of music together over the course of the film. It works really well for the tone of it. So Annihilation Minute. And you can find us on MySpace at myspace.com slash the social minute or on Twitter at social underscore minutes or on Facebook at the social minute podcast. Uh, thanks once more for being my guest here this week, Robert. Thank you for having me. It was fun. And otherwise...